You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. If you would bow your heads with me, I'm going to pray. Father, um, I would just ask that you would come and that you would speak to us this morning. I pray that your spirit would just be powerful in the preaching of your word, that your word would come alive in front of us, that that, that it would speak to our hearts, that it would speak to our minds, and that that it would alter and change our lives. Lord, that we would catch a fresh glimpse and a fresh vision of your son Jesus at the cross who died in this massive display of human weakness so that your power could be manifest in front of us as you save sinners and then make us just like you. Father, I pray that you would do that work through the preaching of your word this morning, that you would take weak and struggling people and help us to rest in the presence of your strength and stability. Lord, I pray that you would do that. Trust that you'll answer that. In Jesus' name, everybody say One of the grand purposes of the church uh, is to help people grow up spiritually, right? One of the grand purposes of the church. Uh, we're called to help uh, unstable people become stable. We're called to help weak and flighty people become strong and unwavering. We're called to help deceived people uh, walk in freedom, walk in the light of the gospel. Uh, think about those three um, Miracles of transformation for a minute, as, as I just communicated. They should be on the slides, too, so they'll be in front of you. Think about unstable people becoming stable. Think about what it means for weak and flighty people to become strong and unwavering. Think about what it means for uh, people who are deceived or walking in deception, walking in the darkness, to suddenly, in, in just a moment, begin to walk in the freedom of the light of the gospel. But these are radical stories of transformation when you think about people's lives who move from one place to another, right? This is the miracle of the gospel at work in the church. It's the miracle of the gospel at work in a church that helps people to grow up spiritually. Now, the way that Paul unpacks this in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7, it says this. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. As you read that passage, as you, as you hear that passage, as you think about it, um, make a leap with me for a minute over to your walk with Jesus right now. How would you characterize your walk with Jesus right now? Is it stable or unstable? Is it weak and flighty or strong and unwavering? Is it deceived and deceptive or is it filled with and set free by the truth of the gospel. 
How would you characterize your walk with Jesus using those descriptors right now? Write that down on something. See, as we've examined this passage over the last few weeks, I've been increasingly convicted, increasingly challenged with the biblical purpose of the church and its role in the spiritual growth of its members, right? We know as we as we look at Ephesians that the three major themes of Ephesians are sit, walk, stand. Those are the three words that you could sum up the entire book with. Sit, walk, stand. First three chapters, all about being seated. Chapters four through roughly the first couple verses of chapter six are all about walking this out. And then the the majority of chapter 6, the final chapter, is all about standing. So God desires for us to be firmly seated in who we are and whose we are. He wants us to walk in obedience to the gospel, and He wants us to stand firmly rooted, firmly secure, immovable against the onslaughts of Satan's sin and the world. In short, what God wants for us is he wants us to walk like spiritual adults, not spiritual infants. Chapter 4, this is where we've been for the last few weeks, is, is where Paul makes his transition away from that theme of sit into that theme of walk. He begins in chapter 4 and verse 1 by urging us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Our calling is twofold, right? Called to follow Christ as we grow up into him in every way. We're called to serve Christ by serving people as we labor to equip each other for the work of ministry that actually builds up the body of Christ instead of tearing it down. So that's radical change because most of us before Christ lived lives that destroyed things. We lived destructive, sinful lives. And we begin to follow Jesus and now we find out that we're called to walk in a way that actually builds things up rather than tearing it down. That's a radical change too. Radical contrast. This twofold calling, this vertical God-focused calling, this horizontal, people-focused calling. It's to be taken seriously. Why? Be taken seriously because our ability to even be called, and you think about the, 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 the concept behind being called is to actually hear someone calling you, to actually be able to hear God calling you in this vertical and horizontal way is serious because it costs Jesus his life. You would not be able to hear the voice of God over you had Jesus not come to the cross. So when Jesus instructs us to be his disciples who pick up our crosses and carry them forward, what we get is we get the same serious tone that Paul uses here in this passage. <coughs> mm, that was loud, right? And we get this same sense of seriousness when Paul says, walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. And the reason is because we have a cross-carrying Savior that is walking out in front of us. He's calling back over his shoulder. He's like, hey, come on. Come follow me. Become just like me in the way that you walk with your cross over your shoulder. As I thought about this this week, (coughs) and honestly, when I don't know, for me, when I think about these concepts, um, when I think about the Western church, uh, it would be easy for me to become like spiritually depressed. Like in our Western culture, like, I think we've turned the body of Christ into a spectator sport where people expect to be entertained. <clears throat> this will sound harsh too. I think we've turned the bride of Christ into a spiritual prostitute. We pay our time, our talent, and our treasure for cheap thrills and membership in a social club. And at the same time as we've done that, and sin runs unchecked in God's so-called people. Godly repentance is antiquated or something we don't want to talk about because it's too hard. It costs us too much to actually walk in repentance. We haven't caught a vision of Christ at the cross yet. 
This is not God's original design for the church. Where we are in the Western church is not what God designed. And the questions that I sometimes ask, I find these in my journal, like where are all the cross-carrying Christians today? Where are they? Where are they? Where can you find disciples who are actually crushed by the love and the grace and the mercy of God to the extent that they have actually toughened up and grown up under the privilege of carrying a cross like Jesus did. It's a privilege to die to ourselves the way that Jesus died for us. It's hard words, right? Heavy words. Where can you find godly spiritual adults who've left their childish ways behind for the sake of knowing Christ and making him known? Where do you find this at? Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, commenting on verse 14, which is our focus today, says this, says, two things are essential for spiritual children to grow into spiritual adults. But the child must first realize that he is a child. They must also realize that because he is a child, he is in an extremely dangerous position. Like We need to grow in self-awareness, and we also need to grow in, in a healthy sense of fear. Because a child who, who lacks the self-awareness to know that he or she is a child does not also have a healthy sense of fear. If that child doesn't know he's a child and doesn't have a healthy sense of fear, then that child will inevitably try to do things that only an adult is able to do safely. And if you look at the Western culture in America today, and I, and I think not just in America, but that's our context. So I think if you look at, the, at, at our culture, you see children doing what adults should be doing and adults forfeiting their responsibility to walk like adults. And then you have entire generations of little kids who think they're adults, but they're still acting like adults are still acting like babies, right? Like, we, we see this, I think, everywhere. We see men who abdicate their role to be men and lead firmly and be present and love and serve instead of use and abuse, right? Calling themselves men but acting like little boys. See women doing the same thing. It runs the gamut on both sides. We see this in our culture. It's permeated the culture and what's happened is and that's permeated the church and the church has ceased to pursue the God-given calling, right, of being countercultural, and the culture has now infected the church to the extent that we just miss it. Far too many spiritual children trying to walk the walk of a spiritual adult, trying to do the work of spiritual adults. What we need to do what we need to do is we need to do the hard work, the hard and oftentimes painful work. But the problem is, in America, we don't like pain. I mean, nobody likes pain, but especially in America, we've learned to placate and medicate that pain so well for generation after generation after generation. I'm, I'm not sure that we understand what it means to pick up a cross and walk in pain. Like to follow Jesus is not a get-rich-quick scheme, right? There should be some pain involved. I think what we need to do is do the hard and oftentimes painful work of becoming spiritual adults who are actually helping other people become spiritual adults too. We need, we need grown-ups doing the work of grown-ups. We need grown-ups doing the work of helping children become grown-ups who then turn around and help other children become grown-ups. I mean, this is really a great summary of what discipleship is all about if you look at the scriptures, right? This is what Paul is talking about when he tells Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 2. I don't think this is on the screen for you. He tells Timothy, take what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach it to others also. Like there's a level of faithfulness and adulthood, adult teen that we see in this passage. So what are some of the marks of spiritual infancy? If we're going to continue talking about this today, what are some of those marks? What does it look like to be a spiritual infant? What, what, do, what does Paul mean when he says that the church is designed to be a place where spiritually gifted people see themselves as gifts to one another who work hard to equip and build one another up until we all attain to perfect faith and perfect knowledge and mature manhood so that we may no longer be children, according to Ephesians 4.14. What does it look like to no longer be a spiritual child? What does it look like, maybe to make this more positive, what does it look like to become a spiritual adult? Take it that way. Number one, spiritual adults are stable. 
Spiritual adults are stable. Paul says, no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. See this picture in my mind of a boat being tossed back and forth on the waves of a violent ocean. Very unstable. And one characteristic of children is that they are unstable. You have children, you know this. If you don't have children, you were a child, so you know this. If you were a child and you didn't realize you were unstable, then we should talk later. <laughs> That's just a characteristic of being a child, right? You just, you're unstable. One moment a child is happy, content. The next moment, like a screaming mess, right? Can easily jump from one extreme to the next. Need constant care, need constant nurturing, constant discipline. Because they're fragile and they're unstable. Controlled by their emotions even. Controlled by a lot of things. The young child begins to learn how to walk. Man, they need someone to hold them steady, teach them how to balance on their own two feet, to comfort them, to encourage them when they take a spill. That's what a child looks like. It really isn't any different with any of us uh, when we become spiritual children, become brand new spiritual babies the day we begin to follow Jesus. And we don't become spiritually mature, spiritually stable adults overnight. Um, just, just depending on a person's upbringing, life experience. And it can take quite a while for a spiritual child to become somewhat stable and able to walk on his or her own two feet. Nevertheless, <clears throat> and maybe painful too, nevertheless, we must pursue spiritual adulthood that is characterized by stability. We must not live perpetually in cycles of instable spiritual infancy. Must not live there. I remember the first few years for me of following Jesus. I was young. I mean, even humanly speaking, I was young. uh, In my early 20s, I was passionate. Still impassionate. Impatient. Still, Still am somewhat impatient. Still learning to temper the passion. Still learning to practice patience in many Areas, but also, I mean, just outside that, outside, like years, years of sinful thinking and sinful desires and sinful living that had taken root in my heart. When you put all that together, like I had to learn how to walk. And I needed people to help me grow up. Now, I haven't arrived there yet, obviously. Well, if you get the sense that I think I've arrived there yet, uh, please cast that out of your mind. We talked about this last week. I'm still in the already complete, not yet completed reality of the Christian life. But, but by God's grace, and I think this passage is on your screen, uh, but by God's grace, he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. It's, it's a passage and a promise that I've held on to for years, that God will complete that work that he begins in us. God is still maturing me. He's still helping me to walk more faithfully each and every day. I'm still learning to no longer be a spiritual infant who is tossed to and fro by the waves like a little toy boat without a captain at the helm. And one of the things that's helped me to no longer be a spiritual infant, one of the things that's helped me to move into spiritual adulthood is is the pursuit of wisdom over foolishness. Pursuit of wisdom over foolishness. Now, James, um, this should be on your screen too, says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts, listen to this, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Nice connection, right, between the two passages, between Ephesians and James. He moves on and says, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, catch this, unstable in all his ways. Interesting that, interesting that wisdom and unbelief would be paired together with James. Say, and you're unstable in all your ways. Because wisdom permeates all of our ways. Right? Agreed? So one of the defining marks of a person who is becoming spiritually stable is a consistent pattern of growing in wisdom. And, and here's, I think, a simple definition of wisdom that I've always um, kind of hung on to. Wisdom is knowledge and action. 
Okay? Knowledge in action. So, so what we need to do is actively put what we know into action in our lives. You know something, put it into action. You know that that burner is hot, so don't touch it. Action would be touch it, right? No, that would be foolish. Foolish. It's a simple, small illustration for the way that we have a tendency to live our lives, though. Knowledge and action. Now, this doesn't mean that you know everything. <clears throat> doesn't mean that you don't trip and fall. On the contrary, it actually means that a wise person knows when to ask for help and then actually does the asking. Put it into action. That, that, that a wise person knows when they need help and they actually receive the help when it comes towards them. Instead of rejecting, that would be putting knowledge into action, right? A wise person knows when to get up from the fall begin walking again. A wise person knows when to begin walking less foolishly than they did before. Rather than going back into the same cycle and pattern of walking as foolishly as they were before. That's what wisdom looks like in action in our lives. It means that we don't live in our ruts. Right? I say this, I've been saying this quite a bit lately. Ruts, graves with the ends kicked out. That's what a rut is. Back and forth in the same grave. Hands kicked out. It also means that we don't continue to live in foolish, unstable, childish patterns. It means that we could say with the Apostle Paul that when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I grew up and gave up my childish ways. This means that we're becoming stable, spiritual adults in our words, in our thoughts, and in our reasoning. It means that we actually get down on our knees like children. Ask our Father in Heaven for the wisdom that we need so that we can walk like adults when we get up off of our knees. So you and I will either be tossed to and fro like a child who never realizes he is a child, tries to do things without the help of his parents, or, or we'll become stable. The way that we'll become stable is through a humbled and surrendered posture of prayer as we trust, believe, and obey our Father's Word. Which reminds me, one of the other things that I think has helped me no longer be a spiritual infant that is tossed to and fro, by the way, is to study the Bible. To study the Bible. Regularly apply it to my life. Listen, when I hear people say, I didn't get into my Bible between this Sunday and last Sunday, I think you're foolish. That's all there is to it. I'm not telling you I've never done that. I'm telling you I preach the same darn message to myself. If I don't get in my Bible between Sunday and Sunday, I'm going to look at myself in the mirror and I'm going to say, you are foolish. Foolish. I'm just living on my own wisdom then. Like, Who cares what God's got to say this week, right? I got this. Prideful. Not wise. Again, preaching to you what I would preach to myself. Study of God's word regularly, applying it to my life has been very helpful. Because the Bible isn't just an instruction manual. Listen to this. It's one of the primary ways that we encounter the presence of God. Agreed? Can somebody say amen to that? A study of God's word is one of the primary ways that we encounter the presence of God. Now, think about this. In the presence of God, there is stability. Because there's nothing unstable in the presence of God. Your life outside the presence of God will always be unstable. In the presence of God is where you and I will find stability. And in the study of God's word is one of the primary ways that we get into God's presence. Peter says this. should be on your screen too. says, ignorant and unstable people twist the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. See, catch the knowledge, knowing this. You know this, I've warned you, I've told you, right? Knowing this beforehand. What's the action here? What would be the wise action? Take care, he says, that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. Lawless people who, who know the law but choose not to follow it. It's a lawless person. And lose your own stability. There can be a way in which you walk with some sense of stability for a while and then walk in instability. But grow. He says, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. See, it's vital to our growth to believe and to trust and to obey God's word. So we become more and more stable as we put the saving knowledge of God's word into wise action. 
Peter, in that passage, I think what he does is he connects the inability to become stable with the practice of twisting God's word. How? Twisting God's word to justify or to allow for some sinful behaviors that ultimately are destructive for us. He warns us to be careful not to get caught up with someone who does this consistently. I actually get the sense that what Peter is saying there is that we're to distance ourselves from people who perpetually distort the truth of God's word. Otherwise, we might get carried away and become unstable too. So practically speaking, in this first point, like I think we are called to no longer walk like spiritual children who are being tossed to and fro by the waves. And the way that we do this is by pursuing wisdom, which is knowledge and action. And the way that we do that is through consistent prayer and the regular study and application of the truth of God's word. The spiritual adults are stable, right? Agreed? Number two, spiritual adults are strong and unwavering. Spiritual adults are strong and unwavering. Now, children are impressionable. They're weak and flighty, right? Impressionable, weak, and flighty. Get easily sidetracked. Need to be taught the difference between what's right and what's wrong. Be taught the difference between what's true and what's false. It's no, no different with spiritual growth at all. It's the same thing. Like we all start out in our Christian walk with a limited knowledge of the gospel, we can easily become distracted by all of the varying winds of doctrine that blow through. Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, this should be on your screen too. Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, says this, says, I'm astounded that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. That there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. It's mind-boggling for me to observe how weak and flighty a child can be. One moment, everything's fine. Just quietly rocking away in the car seat. We used to put our kids in car seats and rock them. Because we had so many kids, couldn't buy enough swings. Couldn't buy enough bouncers either. So that's what we did. So I can see this picture in my head, sitting on a chair. Got both feet underneath car seats, rocking them. And I got both hands going. Four kids at one time, just trying to get settled down. And I'll settle down and just be like, oh, thank you, Jesus. For a second, in a moment, peace. And then one of them would freak out, and all four of them would freak out. (laughs) One moment, everything's fine. Next moment, whole world could be in a tailspin over spilled milk, right? Something small. You know it's not a big deal. I know it's not a big deal. And it's like, why are you freaking out over here? Weak. Truth be told, though, I've observed the same thing in my own life. Uh, one moment I'm praising the Lord, trusting Him. Everything's great. Next moment I'm full of fear and worry, anxiety. I begin to believe the gospel of self-reliance instead of Christ's submission. It's hard to know what to accept as doctrinally true, too. Many competing doctrines coming out of so-called churches today. I wouldn't uh, ever want to stand in front of you and come across like I've got it all down. Um, But there are some things I take some pretty strong stances on biblically. Here's some. Some people preach that if you trust in Christ, then you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Sounds like the opposite of picking up your cross and dying to yourself. It's just the way I come at it. Other people preach that everyone will ultimately be saved someday. someday. I'm not entirely sure then why Jesus, who I think was a perfect preacher, preached on the eternal nature of hell. I'm not sure why. If those preachers are right, then that means Jesus is wrong, which makes you an antichrist, if he's not. I think we were warned about antichrist, false prophets, by Jesus other biblical writers as well. <clears throat> Some people preach that Jesus wasn't the Savior. That seems like an easy one. 
But it's interesting how they make the, the twist. They might say, yeah, he's the Savior, but they don't preach the biblical gospel. They'll just say, man, he, he was a great social example. Yeah, sure he was. When they elevate this social example of Jesus who loved the poor, loved the widow, loved the homeless, um, which is something we are all called to do, agreed. But they elevate this above him as the Savior, and what they do, I think, and what, it's just what I see is that they strip Jesus of the greatest social investment ever made, namely the investment of his spilled blood and broken body so that people in society could be saved from eternal destruction. There are some people that preach that it's <coughs> sinful to celebrate holidays or worship on Sundays. That's a fun one, too. Sinful to celebrate holidays and to worship on Sundays. So I'm not sure why they ignore the practice of the early church, massive portions of the book of Acts, or even just the plain teachings of Jesus on the Sabbath. Like, it, they just ignore that, I guess. I don't know. I don't get it. There are others who preach that only 144,000 people will go to heaven. There's others who are preaching that it's biblical to take multiple wives. I have lots of snide comments, but I'm not going to make them. All of this false doctrine and more, honestly, all, all, and there's a lot more. It's just, a, just the tip of the iceberg. You've got to think, <clears throat> Satan hated God that much, wanted the attention that much. <laughs> why, why, why wouldn't there be just a ton of competing theologies and doctrines out there that are not true that seek to take away from the biblical gospel? So how do we no longer be children? If we know these things, how do we no longer be children who are tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine? How, how do we do that? How, how, do we, how do we know what to cling to as true and what to reject as false? And I think the answer is simple, although I hate simplistic answers. It's just that for the sake of time, I've got to be simple, and there is a somewhat simple answer, but we could talk about this for an awful long time because the Bible has a lot to say about it. So I hope that you'll just kind of receive my simple answer as something that would whet your appetite to go find more answers, right? Um, cling to the biblical gospel. Simple as that. Cling to the biblical gospel and reject anything that says Jesus plus this or that is what you need. Is anything that says that Jesus plus this or that is what you need? And honestly, I'll say this too. I mean, I, that, that equals nothing. But let me say this too. Most of the people that I hear coming out and saying, we found something new. We found a new doctrine. Oh, really? Do tell. Let me hear. Oh, it's funny because what you say is new actually dates back to an older heresy that's been around for an awful long time. So go ahead, keep preaching it. So I just do your homework. Um, as I do the homework, that's, that's what I find. Um, nothing new under the sun. Clean to the simple biblical gospel because Jesus plus this or that, if that's what you need, then it equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing is the message of the gospel. Bring nothing to the table, and that equals everything. So you need to familiarize yourself with the truth. When a counterfeit looms on the horizon, you'll know it instantaneously, and you'll be able to reject it. My kids know my voice, and they can hear it in the crowd. If you know the voice of your father, then you will know when it's not the voice of your father speaking false doctrine. This is why Paul, I think, reminded the Corinthians, this will be on your slide too, that he delivered to them as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, then he goes on, and he, and he appeared to like more than 500 other brothers and sisters too, like this is, there's eyewitness accounts here. The biblical gospel was of first importance to Paul, we need to keep the main thing, the main thing. You take a mayonnaise jar, you put a bunch of uh, golf balls in it, and you mark those the main thing. Guess what else you can put in there? You put a whole bunch of marbles in there because there's cracks and crevices. You can also put a whole bunch of BBs in there. You can get a whole bunch more BBs and a whole bunch more marbles than you can get of the main thing, which are the golf balls. And guess what else you put there? A whole bunch of sand because sand's really small too. And guess what happens after you do all that? If you pour a bunch of water in there too, guess what happens to the main thing? gets lost in the midst of all that rubble. So keep the main thing, the main thing. That's the gospel. Gospel, simple. When we cling to it tightly, nothing of lesser value will get into our hearts and minds. And listen, lastly on this point, gospel centrality isn't just a cool slogan on a banner for the church. 
It's not just the entry point message for Christianity either. The gospel is the message that is central to all of the Christian life, whereby the Christian becomes strong and unwavering instead of carried about by every wind of doctrine. So, spiritual adults are stable and strong and unwavering. Number three. And number three is probably the beefiest and beastiest piece of this. I say that because of the sake of time. Children are prone to walk in the darkness of deception. Therefore, number three, spiritual adults walk in the light. Right? Spiritual adults walk in the light. Children are prone to walk in the darkness of deception. We've all heard the cookie jar illustration that reminds us of a young child's propensity towards lying and deception. It's the same with spiritual children because even though they are now children of God, this passage will be on the screen for you too, they used to be children of Satan, sin in the world, right? Paul said this earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. He said that they used to be dead in the trespasses and sins in which they once walked. Dead. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. Not following Jesus. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Not sons of God. Sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We all lived there. The playing field is even. Every one of us has lived that way. Some of us, it might have been 15 minutes ago. For some of us, it might have been 15 years ago. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's the thing. Newly adopted kids come with baggage. All right? Newly adopted kids come with baggage. Every one of us brings spiritual baggage to the family. That's the point. Every one of us does. The purpose of the church family, just like any um, human adoptive family, is to remind each other that we've been adopted by a new family. We've been adopted by a new father. We've been given brand new clothing. We've been given a brand new heart. We've been given a brand new name. We've been given a brand new destiny. We are children of the king. Our eternal destiny is heaven. If that's all true, then we no longer need to walk like children who are caught up by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We need to leave our childishly deceptive ways behind and walk in the light of the gospel like spiritual adults. Now, Proverbs says that truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. That's interesting. If your lips are drenched in the truth, if your tongue is full of the truth, then your heart will be full of truth-filled plans or schemes, plans, schemes, that lead to eternal peace and and joy. But, But if you find yourself scheming, if you find yourself planning, if you find yourself justifying your sin, then your heart is full of deceit. Your tongue is full of lies. There's no truth on your lips. If that describes you, the clear warning of this passage is that you will not endure till the end. You'll continue to walk like a child who thinks that he or she is an adult. But if this is you, then you're in danger of running off a cliff. You need to be set free by the truth of the gospel. You need to walk in the light instead of walking in the darkness of deception. This reminds me of a dialogue that Jesus had with the religious leaders of his day. Very similar to what we're discussing here. Religious leaders thought that they were spiritual adults, right? They thought they were spiritual adults because they were descendants of Abraham. Abraham's our father. We're growing up. They grew up in a religious family. They had all the certificates to prove it. Baptized on this day, became a member on that day. Studied the books of Hebrews here, and yada, 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 right? Got through all these classes. They had all the certificates to prove it. More than you or I will probably ever come to get. They knew the words of their Bibles inside and out. Their attendance in church gatherings was perfect. Impeccable. Tithe more than was required. Talk all day long about God. They didn't know God didn't have any interest in actually knowing God. They were happy with knowledge about God. They weren't really concerned about knowledge of the presence of God. 
I think they were impressed with themselves. They were upset that people were becoming more impressed with Jesus. So what did they do? They secretly, deceptively, plotted, schemed to kill Jesus. Now it's easy for us to like jump off the ship right there and be like, oh, I'm not like them. I, I would never deceptively plan to kill Jesus. Think again. Every time you deceptively plan to sin, every time you have sinned, you've made a deceptive plan to sin. And that plan and that sin of yours is what nailed Jesus to that cross. Just as guilty as the Pharisees are. <coughs> as Christians, we have a good time of being like, I'm not like that Pharisee over there. Actually, when you say that, it's that you are. When my heart says, glad I'm not like that Pharisee over there, it actually means that I am, because that's the sin of a Pharisee. You know, I'm going to have to secretly scheme to kill Jesus to be guilty of what those guys were guilty of. Look at John 8. Let's look at it. Jesus says a number of these things, things to these guys I think is really important for us to consider. Um, John 8, 31 through 47. Verses 31 through 32, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We're saying about this today in worship, right? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. See, spiritual adults live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. They walk in the light of the word of God. They live in the freedom that the word of God and the presence of God brings. And then Jesus moves on. Verses 34 through 38. Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Aw, crap. Started talking about sin. Would have gotten thrown out of a lot of churches. People would have tuned out right there, right? Start talking about sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the house forever. There's an eternal sense to that word forever. A slave does not remain in the house forever. The son, lowercase s, remains forever. So if the son, uppercase s, sets you free, if Jesus sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, I know that you are offspring of Abraham's. Get that. You don't have to keep reminding me of that, people, right? That's what he's saying. I know this. Yet, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Why is it that they were seeking to kill him? Because my word finds no place in you. Jesus' word finds no place in you if you're living in a pattern of deception. Right? I speak of what I have seen with my father. I love this. I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do what you have heard from your father. Man. <laughs> Ouch. Spiritual adults are not enslaved to patterns of sin. Struggle with sin, yes. Not enslaved. They walk in the freedom and the light of the gospel. They speak of what they have seen when they have been with their father. See the relational language? Hear it again. I speak of what I have seen with my Father. You do what you have heard from your Father. So, question, does your tongue speak from the experience of being with your Heavenly Father, or do you behave and obey what you've heard from Satan? I would like to say that Jesus stopped there, but he didn't. There's a reason Jesus got crucified. 42 through 43, look at this. If God were your father, you would love me. I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? And I love Jesus. Answers his own question. Sets him up. Because they're not going to answer him at this point. Right? Well, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. The spiritual adults love Jesus. The proof of their love for Jesus is that they understand the truth, they love the truth, they desire to hear more of the truth. Now the question for you and I is, can you bear to hear more of God's word, or do you reject the truth of God's word? I'd love to say that Jesus stopped there too, but he doesn't. He goes even further, 44 through 45. You are of your father, the devil. Like, my heart is struck with fear when I hear those words. 
you're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Does not stand in the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Like spiritual adults do not have wills that are dead set on doing what Satan, sin, and the world tells them to do. Spiritual adults stand in and on the truth of the gospel, man. Their, their, their character is shaped and molded continuously by the gospel. They have an insatiable hunger for more and more of the truth of the gospel. So, question, how do we become spiritual adults who walk in the light of the gospel? How do we protect ourselves from becoming like the religious leaders in Jesus' day? How do we guard our hearts from being deceived and living in deception? Here, Paul says to Timothy, look at this passage, should be on your screen, tells Timothy, hey, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. Evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, don't be that way, right? As for you, continue in what you have learned. Continue in what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I don't want my life to be characterized by childish deception. I don't want to live in the darkness. I want to live in the light of the gospel. Paul encourages us to grow up and become spiritual adults who are living in the light of the gospel. He, he, he calls us to continue growing, right? Continue learning, continue believing, continue trusting, continue running with people that will help us become spiritual grown-ups. As soon as we begin to run away from people that can help us become spiritual grown-ups, we become worse than spiritual babies. Did you know there was something worse than spiritual babies? I didn't really realize it until I was studying this. Not that it's a new thing. I think something worse than spiritual babies is evil people who go from bad to worse. Right? People who go from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. That's not what God calls us to. God calls us to no longer be children who are carried about by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. See, God is calling us to become spiritual adults who are stable, strong, and unwavering as we walk in the light of the truth of the gospel. Now, in conclusion, I thought long and hard about the growth rate of the kids that, that Christy and I have, have raised. I've contemplated, um, like, the years of my own spiritual growth. Um, thought about some of the biblical heroes, too. And some of you have, have heard me talk about this quite a bit. It's really impacted me. Like, just, just the trajectory and, and the spiritual growth of like, people like Moses and Abraham and David and Joseph. It should be on the slide next to for you. Like, like, all these biblical heroes were sometimes unstable, right? They were sometimes weak. Um, they were sometimes flighty. Sometimes all these biblical heroes at times spent just immense periods of time walking in the darkness of deception. The truth is, my story is the same, right? My kids' stories are the same. Your story is no different either, if you have some self-awareness. The timeline of growth for these men is, like, astounding for me to think about. Forty years of wandering from Moses in the desert, Back and forth, past the same stinking bush every day, wondering, is I really called to this mundane walk? Roughly 48 years of trials and hardship for Abraham. And if you think between the time of the promise for Isaac and then the command to trust God and sacrifice his only son, some people think that Isaac was 33 years old the day that, uh, the day that uh, Abraham took him up on that mountain. Interesting connection, right? 33 years old, if that's true. David spent years waiting to become a king while hiding in caves from his enemies. And then becomes a king, and then one dumb night, totally biffs it on a rooftop with a woman in a bathtub. Paid the consequences, too. Joseph spent a good portion of his life in prisons, even though he was called to rule and lead the nation, right? So, uh, if, you're, if you're here, and if you're feeling unstable, feeling weak, 
feeling flighty, being caught up in the darkness of deception, my encouragement to you is to trust in the finished work of Christ at the cross. Because when he went to that cross, he finished a work of salvation on your behalf. Jesus spent 33 years, 33 years, walking the face of this earth perfectly. Resisted sexual temptation, resisted temptation to make money. Temptation was huge. Resisted that for 33 years. I could never do that, right? You could never do that. Jesus did. Walked those 33 years perfectly with one single goal in mind. It wasn't to get healthy, wealthy, and wise. It was to die on a cross so that you could have the opportunity to become stable, strong, and unwavering as you walk in the light of the gospel. Here's the money. I think I think this is the money line of this whole sermon. If it doesn't do it for you, that's fine. He gave his life up so that you could grow up and repent. Right? That struck me. He gave his life up so that you could grow up. This is what it means to no longer be spiritual children, but to instead become spiritual adults. This is what it means to no longer be children who are tossed to and fro by the ways carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So what God is calling us to, I think, from this passage is to become spiritual adults who are stable, strong, and unwavering as we walk in the light of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Yeah, Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth of the message of the gospel. Thank you for coming to the cross for us. Thank you for willingly, joyfully going to that cross so that we could have the opportunity to come and to follow you, to grow up, to become more like you. And Father, as we, as we close our time in communion and prayer today, God, I pray that you would just etch on our imaginations the power of your shed blood and broken body. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to do something a little bit different today. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.